Builders series where we have been walking through the book of Nehemiah. And I hope all of you have your Legacy Builders handbook. If you don't, that's all right. If you're online and you wanted this handbook, don't forget you can go to our website and the PDF file is on our website right there for you. But this morning, I just wanted to take a moment and remind us of the purpose of this Legacy Builders series. So if we can put that Legacy Builders goal up on the screen, and I'd like for us to just, again, really understand what the purpose of this series is. Over the next 35 days, our goal as a church is to seek solidarity by taking a faith initiative to ensure the spiritual preservation of the next generation to serve God. Now, again, let me remind you, some of those faith initiatives, uh, the faith initiatives are, they're plural. It's not just one thing. One of the things that we have encouraged our families, a part of this church, and if you're online as well, to do is to utilize the platform Right Now Media that you all signed up for. And every Friday, we have Friday with the family at 7 o'clock. You follow the specific curriculum where we have given you a link to, again, on the website under the Legacy Builders tab, for you as a family to get your kids involved with. Pastor Chase, at the same time, concurrently at 7 o'clock for the youth age students, is leading a time of discussion through God's word and fun with them. Then when it's all finished, kids of all ages come together in the household. If you're a parent that has teenagers and young ones, you bring them together and you facilitate, facilitate discussion together. This is just one of the faith initiatives that we have set forth for us as a body together to act upon upon to bring faith back into the family and into the the home we've also given you these handbooks for you to be utilizing daily if you haven't it's okay you got two more weeks to get on it so jump on it tomorrow grab your book if you don't have a book on our way out we have some in the back so we'll give them to you free of charge we want to bless you with those but that's another initiative to daily be in the word together through these handbooks but then of course as uh, my brother Bill mentioned, and we've talked about every week, we're also taking a faith initiative with our finances. And we've set a goal. Again, in the seat backs in front of you, you there's a card there, and you can see a little bit of an overview of this goal. And it's a $15,000 goal that we've set. And we specifically have shown you where that money is going to go to. Now, I need you to understand something about this idea of giving money. You know, it's something that sometimes pastors don't like to talk about. I'll be honest with you, I don't really like to talk about it. I don't think anybody likes to talk about, you know, money in any situation. My wife and I don't really like to talk about money. You don't want to look at your bank account. You don't want to look if you have credit card debt, whatever it is. You don't like to talk about it. You just like to spend it, right? Can I get an amen? You like to spend it. But we've got to be honest and talk about it. And, and, it's just really interesting how money is so prevalent throughout the word of God. And Jesus, in specifically speaking about money, tells his followers and those around him that you cannot have two masters. So in the church, this isn't a part of my message. This is a blurb before the message. In the church, we practice tithing. Tithing is when we take 10% of our overall income and we give it back to the Lord. And really, you need to understand the reality behind that. It's saying, God, 
you have given me 100% of all that I have. All that I have is given to me by you. Therefore, I can at least give 10% back to you in faith. That's the heart behind it. We don't demand, if you're a member in good standing, we hold you accountable to say, hey, if you want to continue to enjoy being a part of this body, then please help support it. But if you're just a regular, you know, new attender, whatever it might be, we're not going to sit here and judge you and say, you better be given. We don't do that. We don't say you're going to hell if you don't give. That's not what we do. I'm not going to come knock on your door with my clipboard and say, hey, your tithing has, you know, is delinquent. I'm not going to do that stuff to you. All right. But we do need to talk about the significance of it. But this faith initiative offering is a step beyond that, specifically to say, God, we have faith for the future of our body, for the generations to come. But it's our responsibility to act now in order to prepare for the next generation to have something. And listen, we all have that responsibility. If you're here and you don't have kids, if, you're, if you yourself are a kid here today, don't think that you're excluded from this. We all have a part to play. And so, listen, I, I'm, I'm going to segue again and, and build upon this again. I shared on our Wednesday night Bible study that the Lord has really been placing vision in my heart for our church. I've been praying since I've been here and asking others to pray week after week after week. God what do you want us as a church body to do? Obviously, we're going to keep meeting together and we're going to receive from your word and worship. But what do we do to keep growing your kingdom and expanding our reach outside of just this right here? This is so necessary, but God, what more do you want from us? Because I know you can do more through us. And I've been praying and praying and praying. And the Lord, let me tell you, has placed some very specific vision on my heart. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. And let me tell you why. Because a wise pastor told me that culture must always precede vision. Let me explain that. I can share with you something that the Lord gave to me that my heart was cultivated for. That, that the soil of my soul had been tilled up and was ready to receive the seed that the Holy Spirit was going to plant. That vision, that seed in my heart. I was ready to receive it. But I need to know if you all are ready to receive it yet. And that brings me to the faith initiative offering. The vision that I am yet to share with you that I'm not going to share with you yet is a big vision. And I know it's going to stretch each and every single one of us. But I need to know that before I share that so that it doesn't become squandered or belittled or, or not is received in faith. The idea that, hey, that's big, but I serve a bigger God. And if he called us to do that, we'll do that. If that's the response, I need to be sure that my flock is ready to receive that vision. And the way that I'm going to be able to measure that, the board is going to be able to measure that, is to see how much faith we're willing to walk out in through this act of above and beyond giving, this offering. So I say all that to let you know of the significance of this. It really is a marker for us. It's for us to be able to hold each other accountable and see, okay, God, I'm excited for what you're going to do. And let me prove it by stepping out in faith with my finances and show you that I am not shackled to the uncertainty of my future based on how much I have in my bank account, but I am completely forthrightly going to 
push forward, even though I don't know what the future holds for me, by giving you this. And listen, I, I calculated it. For us to raise $15,000, we average about 36 people. We have more people that attend our church, but average, depending on who comes on a Sunday, right around 36 people. That means that every individual would need to give right under $400. And I know that's a lot of money. And not everybody's going to be able to give that. Some are not going to be even be able to give close to that. But I give you that number so you understand where we need to be individually. And maybe you're, you're here and you say, I can give that. Maybe some of you are saying, God, I can't even begin to give that. I don't want you to walk out of here in condemnation against yourself. Don't do that. But I want you to walk out of here with a goal of saying, God, here is what pastors said would be the need for me to meet. Now, Lord, I pray that you supply that so that I can give it to you and rejoice in faith, seeing that you worked and you moved. And maybe you're here today and the Lord lays upon your heart that you have that and you might have a little bit more to give and God lays on your heart, hey, know that there are some individuals in this church that can't give that, so I want you to give on their behalf. See, this is the way that we as a body can really band together and we can know where we're at in being able to press forward with the vision that the Lord is slowly unveiling to us. So, you all want to know what that vision is? Well, you're going to have to wait for the weeks to come. Because i got to know that you're ready to receive it. Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. Well, I'm excited because all of that is next week. Next week is our celebration Sunday. And l- listen, let me just tell you, next Sunday, we're going to have an incredible time. We have a number of individuals baptizing. Come on, can I get some celebration for that? Yes. We're going to be baptizing right out on the front lawn. It's going to be like a hot tub jacuzzi for those of you being baptized. So don't worry, it's not going to be freezing. Got a heater for it and everything. Um, We're going to have some food that I've asked some individuals to carefully prepare, and my wife and I are going to be serving you because we want you to know we have not had COVID-19, we have not been exposed to COVID-19, and we're going to wear gloves and masks, and we want to serve each and every one of you individually. Um, So I want to ask that you would please make preparations to be able to fellowship, even if you don't want food. Stay to celebrate the baptisms that are taking place next Sunday as one body. Let's be able to show the world that we're a family. We, we function in solidarity together. But then I also want to give you a heads up that my wife and I have reached out to a photographer friend that we know that is going to be here to help get captured the day, not only for us to be able to share now, but in the days to come. So they're going to be capturing the whole service. So I tell you that so that you're not caught off guard if you see a photographer taking some pictures during worship or the sermon. And then to give you a heads up just in case you want to dress a certain way. You don't have to. I just want you to know so you don't come to me, Pastor. Why didn't you tell me there was somebody taking photos of me? You see my hair? No, it's like, it's okay. I just want you to have a heads up for that, all right? So we're going to have food. We're going to have a photo booth, not for that photographer to take pictures, but for you to take some pictures with your phone and have some fun with that. It's going to be an awesome, awesome Sunday that I am so excited for. So let's just be ready for what God wants to do that Sunday. Okay, amen? All right, now let's get to the word today, all right? All right, so... Before we get into it, um, I, I want you to take a look at the screen because this is going to be important for where we go for our message. So take a look at this video. All right, right here we have Kyrie Irving. I don't know if you all know who that is, but he is one of the best point guards in the NBA, even though he hasn't been exhibiting leadership. Do you, do you see what he's doing with the ball right now? Now, now, now watch his defender. Why, oh, he just went down. 
All right, can you rewind that? Because I want everybody to watch again carefully the moves exhibited by Kyrie Irving in this video. He's got the ball, he's in the offensive mode, and he's trying to fake out his defender right now. Watch the way he handles the ball. Watch his defender's movements. His defender's trying to read him, and he can't. He goes to the left, and he's trying to go to the right. Now watch, he's going to go down because of the step back. And then Kyrie gets a shot off. Oh, that felt good. I love watching that man play, especially now that he's on my team, even though he didn't play this year. Now, I share that video with you because today we're going to be talking about resisting opposition. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 specifically, and i got to kind of broadly stroke over all of these chapters for us to get through it today. But specifically, I show you that video because within the realm of any kind of sports, but in basketball, there's a number of different move sets that an offensive player will exhibit in order to fake out his defender. you got a Euro step. You've got a rocker step. I mean, I... I can go down the list. I know Austin can share a ton with you in this matter as the expert. There, there are a ton of movesets that any good caliber player is practiced and ready to exhibit in order to outwork his opponent. And it's important for both the defender and the offensive player to be able to read the moveset of their opponent in order to adjust and prepare for what's next. So if you're in control of the ball, you need to be ready to fake out your defender. And more so, you got to know how your defender is going to be able to work against you. And the truth is vice versa. The defender needs to know, okay, what moveset is this player going to exhibit in this moment that I need to be aware of and well prepared for? Because in that video, Knight got well worked over and was flat on his face because he wasn't ready for Kyrie, what Kyrie brought him. So that's important for us as we transition to see how the people of God needed to be aware and how we today as the people of God need to be aware of this specific move set that the enemy is going to try to employ in order to bring us down. So let's go to Nehemiah, specifically chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and it says this. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the jewels and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. So here's the first observation that I want to make based on the text today that helps us understand the moveset of our opponents. Ready? The enemy is going to try and make you think that what you have isn't good enough. Let me point it out to you. Specifically, when we see Sanballat in his ridicule of the Jews, he says this. First he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? So right there, I need you to understand that Sanballat in this moment starts with belittling the work. He attacks the purpose 
of the Jews for which they returned back to Jerusalem. And that was to restore the wall. And he goes right for that. So in other words, he's kind of saying, hey, what's the point? But then he goes on. And he says, will they offer sacrifices? Right there in that question, the enemy belittles the purpose of the work in saying that, you know what? You need to understand that it's just never going to work out in your favor. No matter how hard you try, it's not in the cards for you. But then he doesn't stop. He keeps going, and he, he, he gives it a timestamp. He says, will they finish in a day? See, right here we see the enemy attacks the validity of provision. Listen to me. That's, that's, that's getting you to think what I have just isn't good enough. So first he, he goes for, what's the point of trying? Then he goes to, you know what? It's never going to work. And let me tell you why it'll never work, because the provision that you've been given just isn't good enough. But then finally, he makes you think that you don't have enough time. How many, come on, how many of you have ever said that? I don't got time to do that. I'm sorry. It's just, I, I, I'm too stretched. I can't. I, I, God, you understand. I, I don't have time. So he, he makes you question the purpose. He makes you think it'll never work. He says the provision that you've been given isn't good enough. And then he says, you just don't know, you don't have enough time. How does Nehemiah respond to this? Let me show you. Verses four through five, here's Nehemiah's response. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. What you're going to see throughout Nehemiah's chapters 4 through 6, which I encourage you to continue to read and study outside of today, is that every, I'm telling you, you read this, every single time the enemy attacks Nehemiah, his first response, if we have seen throughout this entire book, is prayer. He brings it back to God, and he is unreserved in making his request. And it's so interesting here, because as we're going to see at the end of the message, Nehemiah's prayer is going to be fulfilled. And look at the content of his prayer. His prayer is, Lord, I want you to take the very insults and the accusations that they're making against us, and I want you to reverse the roles so that they receive the outcome of their accusations. But let, let, me, let me go a little bit more to a psychological perspective that I have on this that doesn't really, it, it is spoken of in the text by seeing the situation, but I, I, I want to I kind of draw it even closer to home for us with the implications for application. And let me say it this way. I, I believe right here that the enemy is attacking the one place that he knows he can really get a hold of us. And I've said it before. He goes for our insecurities, and he tries to play on them. He makes us question the purpose, the call. Ah, was I really called? Ah, God, did you really want this for me? Then he goes on, and he, when we're in the midst of the call, he says, ah, you, know, you know, look at what they're saying. Maybe it's true. Maybe there's no point to this. Why are we even here? Why did we even show up? Why are we even trying? And then he, when that doesn't work, he goes on, and he says, ah, you know what? The, the purpose is good. And, and, and it's a good heart, and it's a good mindset. It's something we need to do, but we, it's just not on the cards for us right now. I mean, look, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough ability. We don't have enough people to accomplish this. Our provision, it's just not good enough. 
And then again, you know what? We've got it all except for the time. You know, maybe another day. God, we'll get to that another day. You've provided all the rest, but it's just not the cards for us now. He's trying to get under your skin to make you think that God made a mistake. And that's really the idea of insecurity. But listen to me. The key to overcoming insecurity, you ready for it, is to learn contentment. It is so simple, but it is so profoundly true, and it is something that is hardwired to work against us, not only in our fallen state, but living in the 21st century in America, where we can't learn to be content with the clothes that we bought two months ago because something new came out. We can't learn to be content with our phone because the minute we saw the commercial and we went out and we bought that new phone, another phone comes out two months later making you feel like the one you've got is worthless. My car isn't as shiny. My car doesn't have the ergodynamic whatever that other cars have. And it just, it, it's hardwired in our culture to force us to lack contentment. And then when we've allowed that secular mindset into the sacred lifestyle that we are called to exhibit, then we start becoming insecure about the things that God has given us. My marriage isn't good enough. My relationships aren't good enough. My job isn't good enough. My church isn't good enough. The ministries that we do at our church isn't good enough. The government isn't good enough. Go, go down the list... And God is saying, listen, nothing in this fallen world is perfect, but I'm a perfect God that's trying to work in your life. And what I'm trying to do now is to use what I've given you. So stop looking past it and look at what you have in your hands and say, God, thank you. And you are a great and mighty God. And you can take the least of my offerings and be pleased with them and multiply them. If you can take the five loaves and the two fish of a little boy who got his lunch robbed from him, just kidding, what can you do with the little that I have? Chapter 5. I'm not going to read one text from there because I need to go to chapter 6, but I want to make a point from chapter 5. And let me just broadly give you an idea of what happens. Chapter 4, as we briefly looked over, In the first few verses, you'll see how the enemy just keeps trying to attack through insecurity and through threats and through belittlement. But then chapter 5 is really interesting because then the threats aren't coming from the external but the internal. And when you read chapter 5, the problem comes from within the body, from within the people. And specifically, here's what's going on. There's a tax that was just regular and was imposed by the king of Persia, which the Jews were under the rule of, that everybody had to follow. The problem was there were those within the Jewish nation who couldn't pay the tax. And so what was customary in this time was to mortgage off or sell off your land. And if that wasn't good enough, you would sell yourself or your children into debt slavery. Specifically, it was slavery that had an end date. It was something that, hey, I will become your slave for this amount of time until the debt is paid off. We see that was a customary practice in this time. The problem was that the Jews who didn't have the money were being held in bondage to these debts to their own fellow Jews who had more wealth. 
They went to their brothers and sisters, their cousins, their uncles, and they said, hey, you know, I, I'm kind of in a tough place. I can't pay my taxes, you know, so can you give me a loan? They received the loan, then they can't pay back the loan. So to pay back the loan, they say, okay, I'll sell you my property. But then if you sell the property, how are you going to make a living because you can't grow crops and, and, and have cattle and all that? Okay, well, now that I don't have that, but I still got to pay back the loan. Here, take me or take my kids in the meantime. And then these individuals come to Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, how can we even work when we're too busy enslaved to our own brothers and sisters? And Nehemiah in chapter 5 becomes so unsettled and disgusted. And he goes to the nobles and the rich and he says, listen, I myself have lent out to those in need and you're charging interest. Why are you holding them in shackles? Why are you lording their debts over their head when you have plenty? And we learn an interesting point from this section. Listen to me. When the enemy can't get you head on, he goes for your blind spot. He goes to the place you would least expect it. He goes, I'm good. I've got no struggles. I'm good in my workplace, my coworkers, you know, my, my best friend growing up who's not of the faith. I, I'm good. I don't have anything coming at me. I've got my addictions in check. I've got my vices in check. I'm going to church. I'm reading my word. I'm good. Enemies like, keep thinking that. And then when you least expect it, I'm going to have one of your brothers or sisters in Christ come up to you when you're trying to do the work of the Lord, and they're going to get under your skin. And they're going to make you feel like you're not living the way that you ought to live. And then they're going to shackle you with expectations and demands that you're unable to keep. This is what we see happen to Jesus through Peter. Why do you think Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? He, he wasn't, he wasn't like unrighteously indignant towards Peter. He wasn't jealous of Peter. He was upset with Peter because Peter had his own mind and his own desires, which honestly were okay thoughts, in my opinion. Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter's like, Jesus, don't speak like that. Don't even begin to speak like that. You're going to live a good, happy, long life. Keep doing the great work you're doing. And that was tempting for Jesus. And Jesus recognized in that moment that Satan was using Peter, probably unknowingly, to Peter's understanding in order to get Jesus to deviate from his purpose and his call. There are individuals in your life, there are parents, there are Christians, there are good, godly people in your lives who unfortunately, in a moment of weakness, will come at you in a way that you least expect. And it's in those moments that you need to remember, I do not play your game, Satan. This might come against me right now, but I'm not going to respond the way that I know you want me to respond. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to react in a way that will destroy this lifelong relationship that we've had for so many years out of unrighteous indignation because I'm offended in the moment. I'm not going to respond in the way that the enemy wants me to respond, even though these individuals have placed such a burden on me that is wrong and ought to be forgotten and let go go. But God, I'm going to continue to operate in grace and in compassion and in truth because you are God and I live for you, not for the enemy. But recognize, listen, so you don't fall flat in your face when the enemy's coming at you. Recognize 
sometimes they know that they don't have the ability, the poise, the strength, the endurance, the athleticism, whatever, make it spiritual, to bring you down. And so they're going to cause somebody from within to come against you. It's your blind spot. It's not the only blind spot, but it's a blind spot. All right, let's keep going. Chapter 5, let's go to chapter 6. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verses 1 through 4 say this. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the doors in their gates. Nehemiah's being fair right there. He's like, it's not fully done yet. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Nehemiah, hey, come, come on. Let's meet together in one of the villages in the place of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times, underline that. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Here's the third tactic of the enemy. You ready? Here it is. Repetition is the rhythm of the enemy. Repetition is the rhythm of the enemy. Listen, the first point that I want to bring out to you about what we just read is the Valley of Ono. (laughs) Just jokingly, if they want to invite you to a place that literally... It's called, oh, no. Maybe that's an indication that you shouldn't go. No, that that does not work there. It's just kind of funny when you read it. It's like, of course, they were up to no good because they wanted to go to a place of, oh, no. Um, Anyway, what we know geographically is that the Valley of Ono was roughly 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now, in a day where you didn't have vehicles and modern transportation, 27 miles was a long journey. So think about it. It's 27 miles far away from his place of residence, his place of protection, where they had been banding together as a community to fight off the attacks of the enemy. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, hey, let's just talk about it. But rather than coming and talking about it with you at your front door, they say, why don't you go way far out of reach where nobody's going to be around to hear you scream? You know what I'm saying? So that's the first indication that I think is so interesting, especially when it comes to Nehemiah's wisdom as a leader. He's like, no, I don't have any time for that. If you want to have a conversation, and you know, no, we don't even, we're not even going to have this conversation because I've got a work to do, and I'm here about the master's business. But what, what I think is interesting is specifically the idea of, let, let me use the word flirtatious. Here you have an enemy that is ruthlessly trying to thwart the purpose and the work and the plans of the people of God who all of a sudden makes a complete reversal and comes against them in a flirtatious manner. And it's flirtatious because, think about it, the people of Jerusalem not only had the work that they needed to do, but if you go back and you read chapter 4, it says that Nehemiah's wisdom caused them to work with a shovel in one hand and a sword in another. In other words, the idea of keep doing the work, but live ready prepared because you never know when the enemy's going to strike. So you can't become paralyzed out of fear 
in your work of obedience to God. You keep working, but you work with wit and intellect and observation. And now all of a sudden, the opportunity is presented. Let's stop worrying. Let's just relax. You no longer have to look over your shoulder. You're going to be okay. You're going to be free of worry. Let's just work things out. You see this idea of flirtation with something that seems very tempting for Nehemiah and the people. Something that the enemy is really good at getting in a rhythm of doing. Presenting us with something that looks good, but we've got to be ready to call it out for what it is. Here's the last thing that I want to say about that that I want you to really think about. You ready? This idea of the rhythm of repetition that the enemy uses to come against us. Think about it this way. Someone who has an addiction, whatever that addiction is, to sexual immorality, to drug abuse, to, uh, I don't want to say depression, you know, self-image issues, anything that can become addictive with with trying to cover up your self-perceived imperfections of yourself or vices. It's an addiction, whatever it might is. Let's just talk about addiction. You take that addiction and you give it to the Lord. And you say, God, I want to be free of this. I don't want to think this way. I don't want to act this way. I don't want to talk this way. I don't want to view myself this way and try to overcompensate for this false view of myself that I have. So, Lord, I give it to you, and I trust you to restore me. And we feel victory, and we experience victory. But then, just like that, the temptation comes back right where it started. And it seems to be a repetitive process that, mind you, we all can be fully aware of is difficult and frustrating and hard to deal with. But here's the problem. We allow the lies of the enemy to penetrate our thinking so as to believe that God must be absent if... I am repetitively going through the motions of addiction. But listen to me. We need to stop thinking that the repetition of our battles is a result of God's absence, but an indication of the enemy's despair. Listen, because if you are continually going through the motions of having the enemy tempt you, you need to understand it's because the enemy is grasping and kicking and screaming because they recognize there is a person who recognizes that they are a child of God and I am losing my grip on them, so I need to redouble down and get them right back into their habits. And God is saying, it's okay, you might have stumbled in that moment, but keep moving towards me. I'm with you. I haven't left you. The enemy's attack is an indication that they are in despair. That's what we see right here. And so you need to be encouraged by that. You get this idea that I need to become perfect. Jesus was perfect so that you wouldn't have to be. Your your charge is to be obedient, and that's hard. Because you get angry at others and yourself because you're saying, I'm trying, God. 
I'm trying. And he's like, good, keep trying. That's all that I ask. I've got the rest. I don't expect perfection. I expect obedience and action and perseverance. Verse 5. Then, get ready. The one step didn't work. He's going to switch it up. Here it is. The fifth time, four times didn't work. Fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide with me, with the, to me with the same message. And in his hand was an, underline this, unsealed letter. That's important. In which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. Here's the proclamation. There is a king in Judah. I'm going to put in parentheses, and his name is Nehemiah. Now, this report will get back to the true king of Persia. So come, let's meet together. Let's talk. I sent him this reply. Nehemiah is such a boss. Get ready for this. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You two-time and backstabber. You, you snake in the weeds. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. That literally is, it's a figment of your imagination, cuckoo. What, who, who do you think? You're not fooling anybody. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and their purpose will not be completed. But I prayed, there it is, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. God, they want my hands to become weak because of the lies that they're spreading about me, but strengthen my hands. All right, here's the next tactic of the enemy that we see based on the text. When repetitive flirtation doesn't work, the enemy goes for coercion. Coercion is the idea of twisting your arm in order to get their way. You know, I'm going to threaten you in some way if you don't comply with the demands that I'm making. That's the idea of coercion. And it's really interesting. The, the enemy realized threat of arms, you know, uh, coming against them in battle wasn't working. Getting them to flirt with the idea of, hey, we just want peace. We're tired. Let's all go back to the way things were, to let their guard down. That didn't work. So the next step is, okay, we're going to get back. We're going to go back to getting under their skin and trying to get our way. But we're not going to come at them with sword. We're going to come at them with tact and subtleties in the form of lies. Specifically, the enemy now moves to a place of attacking the credibility of the leader. See, the enemy wants to make you think that your work or our work as a church community is pointless by fabricating, that word's important, fabricating a narrative that will work against us. I think if we really open our eyes right now, this isn't something that is absent from American society against Christianity today. You bunch of haters, you bunch of condemners. Granted, there are people that walk around in the name of Christ that do pass that, and God forgive them and help them. 
But true Christians don't do that. But because of the reality for the values of Christ for which we stand, they are inevitably going to contradict the temptatious desires of this world to fulfill your own selfish needs. And when we stand contrary into that, the enemy now is going to employ a method that cuts our legs out from underneath us in such a way as to cripple us in fear through a lie to make us give up the work that God has called us to. I call it COVID-19. It's a real problem. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem and all the surrounding people of the nation were a real problem. It wasn't a figment in the people of Israel's imagination. They were people that wanted to kill the people of God. COVID-19 is a disease that wants to kill humanity. I'm not saying it has its own thought. It's not that. It's just a disease. But Satan is trying to use this disease in his own wicked ways so as to convince the people of God that their God is no longer powerful enough to deliver them from the adverse effects of this disease. So we shut ourselves in. We give up gathering as the body of Christ. And now what's happened? There has been an extreme loss across the board for a need to be a body to be a community. Now, I was really convicted of this yesterday, specifically thinking about the next generation, and I don't even have kids yet, but it's amazing. Whenever things happen in a way that our country goes down, and I'm I'm just going to say this, and listen, we we welcome everybody here, but we take our stand biblically uh, on every issue, but when it it came uh, four years ago when the Supreme Court passed uh, legalized homosexual marriages my heart broke because now it broke specifically for this reason children are going to grow up in a society where that's okay and they're not going to have a reference point of that being wrong and listen if you've struggled with homosexuality in your life we're not here to condemn you we're here to love you and we're here to help you but we do stand on the word of God which says that that is not right just like murder is not right just like stealing is not right just like addiction is not right so if you've struggled with homosexuality guess what you're a sinner saved by grace and so am I Just because I don't struggle with that makes me any better than you. But we need to call sin for what it is, sin. And we can't continue to live with it and and cover it up and make it look pretty and say it's okay. So that being said, that was one point. This is the second time because I thought specifically in the church realm, the effect that COVID-19 has had on the next generation is there are kids who are growing up not being shown the importance of being a part of the body of Christ. And I pray that the Lord works. If you're here today or if you're watching online, don't be condemned. Be motivated. Be convicted. Allow the Lord to speak to your heart to make a life adjustment. I'm not saying be foolish about the actions of caring for your children. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't care about COVID-19. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if your children has pre-existing medical conditions or is a newborn that you should still go against what the CDC is saying. I'm not saying that, but I am bringing to your attention not to allow this virus that the enemy is so manipulating to get you to think that my kids are going to be fine just at home, not being exposed to the beauty of the one place in all of this world that God has instituted to stand as a beacon of hope and light. 
The enemy's trying to create a narrative that works against us. And I think it's interesting, specifically how I told you to underline that phrase, unsealed letter. It was customary in these times that when you were to send an official document, you would melt some wax and put a seal on it. And that document needed to be delivered, and the recipient of that letter would know, hey, I can trust what is written in this document because it has whoever great person's official seal, and nobody opened it and rewrote some stuff to try and get me to think otherwise. Sandbalot didn't follow that customary things. Here's why. Not because he wanted anybody to change it. He wanted everybody who had that message, the messengers that had that message from point A to point B to allow everybody else to read it, to let a narrative spread throughout the kingdom, specifically within the Israelite kingdom of Judah. I want everybody in Jerusalem to know that this is what's coming against them. And it was an attack on the credibility he literally twisted the very work for which they were meant to be called, that they were given freedom from the king of Persia to do. And now it was, hey, your work is a representation of you trying to build your own kingdom and come against the king. How do you come against that? Accusations against you that can cause you to lose your head when that is not why you're doing it. Listen to me. Please listen to me. Stop giving credibility to worthless accusations. You are a child of God. I am not promising you that the attacks aren't going to come. They will come. But in that moment of desperation when fear is bringing you so far down to a state of being so crippled that you don't feel like you even want to get up and keep moving forward, you need to understand that God is greater and the narrative that he has set upon your life, the call that he has given you is so much greater than any fallacious, maligning lie from the pit of hell that Satan is going to try and employ against you. So stop giving credibility to it. You are not what the media says you ought to look like. You are not lacking in your specific skin color or race because if you support some sort of political candidate, whoever it is, you are not an evil person if you struggle with temptations and have addictions. Well, excuse me, you are an evil person. We're all evil. You're, you're not hated by God. God loves you in spite of that. So stop giving credibility to those worthless accusations. Just stop. Verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Before we go to verse 10, I just got to make one more point about that. Stop giving credibility to accusations, to worthless accusations, not just accusations against you, but against others. Listen, just because the letter is being circulated that is full of deceit obviously means it's not true. And so when we see something that seems scary, why would we be so quick when Nehemiah had a track record of standing up for the people, of praying to God, of doing what's right? Why would as soon as some sort of scathing narrative comes out against him, that obviously seems fishy because the letter's unsealed and it ought not to be, 
Why are we so quick to give credibility to that? And why are we so quick to turn our back on others because of just one person's word? So don't let gossip dictate your viewpoint of someone else. Don't let the media's gossip of some person dictate your view of somebody else. You form your own opinion by knowing the person. Know them. Go out to eat with them. Have a conversation with them. Know what they value. Don't let others tell you what they value. Because you can't trust it. We've seen it. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was shut in at his home. Underline that. He said, hey, let's meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming in to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? That's important. Should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. How did he know that? He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin. That's important. So that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Listen, I'm going to make a point that we're going to talk about this. Uncleanness or uncleanliness is usually a characteristic of someone who's untrustworthy. And listen, I mean spiritual uncleanness. I'm not talking about someone who hasn't showered in a few days. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritual uncleanliness is usually a characteristic of someone who is untrustworthy. And let me expound upon that because all of us have some unclean things in our lives. So does that mean none of us are trustworthy? No. Let's, let, let's talk about this man here. The first point that we need to understand was, first of all, he was a prophet that was shut in his home. Now, there are some speculations by commentators as to why he was shut in his home. Number one was he probably was trying to observe a specific rite, a ceremonial rite of, listen, like, like we do with fasting or things where we abstain or there was the Nazarite vow or certain practices where men would shave their heads and, and stay that way for a certain amount of time out of honor and ceremonial cleanliness to God. This could have been one of those moments, but it could also have been a moment where he was confined to his quarters because he had committed an act of uncleanliness. Now, whether that act of uncleanliness was arbitrary or accidental, we don't know, but the, the fact of the matter was he was unclean. And we can go deeper into knowing the content of his heart by seeing the fact of what Nehemiah just said. He was paid to do so. So this, this wasn't a, a really good guy. But, but how did Nehemiah really know that this guy wasn't kosher? No pun intended because they're Jewish. Um, how did he know that he was legit? Well, he calls it out here. He said, should a man like me run away? Here's, here's the second one. Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Why does that seem like a problem? We want everybody to come to the house of God no matter what the problem is. I, I want everybody here to be able to repent and give their life to the Lord. But why in this time, prior to Christ's coming in the new covenant to the old covenant, would Nehemiah not take the temptation in under threat of death, to run to the house of God, which was to be a sanctuary. We know biblically through the book of Leviticus that there you could go to the temple of God to find sanctuary until proper procedures were done to bring conviction and in a court of law and study to see if the evidence brought was wrong. Why would he say, 
should a man like me do this and commit a sin in doing so? Well, here's what's interesting. We talked at the beginning of the book that Nehemiah was most likely a cupbearer, a very close confidant to the king who had close association with the king's harem. And so if I'm going to trust one of my boys to be around all of my lady friends, I'm not going to allow this man to have any temptation. I'm not going to go there, but I'm just going to say parts of his body were removed so that there would be no temptation. He was a eunuch. We, we can kind of deduce that pretty accurately, even though it doesn't forthrightly say that Nehemiah. Biblically, a eunuch was unclean. And so as a Jew, it was wrong for you to enter into the temple. Therefore, this man, in full knowledge of who Nehemiah is, is asking him to compromise his convictions and saying, hey, friend, your life is in danger. So why don't you go to the temple of God? It's okay if you're sinning and doing so. Just go. You'll be safe. Nehemiah, hold on. There's a problem because if this man was truly a follower of Christ, he would have presented another way. You know what? I smell garbage. Shemaiah was trying to use fear to lure Nehemiah in so that he could, in this sense, once again, undermine the credibility of Nehemiah, who in the presence of all the people would compromise his convictions don't allow, listen to me, don't allow someone else's grime to bring you down in the process. Can I just say it that way? Don't allow the spiritual compromising nature of their uncleanness to say, oh, it's fine. Who cares? Nobody's going to know. Oh, it doesn't. Just, just do that. When you know that ultimately they have an ulterior motive where they want to bring you down to their same level because of their own insecurity about themselves, about themselves, and say, you know, why am I the only one feeling this way? Everybody else should feel this way, so I'm going to make them feel this way. There are people like that, and we ought to love them and show compassion, but not give them what they're trying to get us to convict. Don't allow their grind to bring you down. Understand that one of the tactics of the enemies is to taint you. All right, let's keep going. That's where we're going to conclude. Verses 15 and 16 say this. So the wall was completed. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. It didn't take us that long, but it took us probably half long, Pastor Chase and I, to do all this. Talk about building a wall around an entire city. They did it in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, please read this. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Here's why. Because they realized that this work had been done with what? The help of our God. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, listen to me, let's go back. So that, that's the result. Let's go back to Specifically, chapter 4, back in the beginning of, of this whole narrative about the opposition of the enemy. Verse 1, 
When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the jewels. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? What they are building, even a fox climbing upon it, would break down their wall of stones. How does Nehemiah respond at the beginning of the opposition? Read it with me. Verse 4, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. God answered the original prayer of Nehemiah at the beginning of the opposition. Listen to me. Here's the point. Faithfulness in the fight will lead to fulfillment. Faithfulness in the fight. Because listen, Nehemiah didn't just say the prayer and then sit down and get in the fetal position and say, God, figure it out. He said, God, be with us, lead us, show us how to move, how to act, and how to respond when more threats come in repetition. And we see it every time throughout chapters 4 through 6. The enemy gets upset. They switch up their tactics. Nehemiah responds with prayer. He he denies the credibility of the claims that are falsely made against him and the people. And then he gives the people direction. He says, okay, they're going to come against us with force. Here's how we're going to respond. Work with the shovel in one hand, work with the sword in the other. Oh, they, 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 they want to keep, they want to lure us out of the city. We're not stupid. We, we, we know what they're getting at because we look at their track record. I'm willing to have a conversation, but you come to our doors. Oh, you don't want to? Okay, that's fine. I knew I smelt it on the way in. I knew I smelled it. All right, you, you want to switch it up again, and now you want to make illegitimate claims about who I am? Well, guess what? I don't care what kind of narrative you say about me because I'm not who you say I am. I am who God says I am, and I know that I'm being faithful to God, so I don't care what you try to use to threaten me. I trust in God. Oh, you, you, you want to use one of my own people to prophesy against me, to compromise my own convictions now you're really making it easy for me because I knew you were up to no good at step one step two and step three and to get me to think for a second that you had changed your motivation I know the tactics of the enemy and I know how to resist you they prayed and they persevered faithfulness in the fight led to the fulfillment of the prayer of Nehemiah Here's how I want to conclude. What, what, what does this mean for us as a church? There's a lot of what it means for us personally, but let me make it more of a, of a corporate macro uh, perspective about how we ought to respond to this or view, view our position in this story as men and women serving the Lord in the 21st century in Tinton Falls, New Jersey. Ready? Listen to me. When the church has a presence, God has a platform. When the church has a presence, God has a platform. Listen, listen. The enemy wants you to think that your purpose is pointless. He's going to attack the reason for which you came. But when you say, not today, Satan, and the enemy continue, the, the church continues to gather together, oh, we can't thwart their purpose. We are continuing to uphold our faith during the fight, 
And now the promise and the plan that God had made for us is being fulfilled. We have a presence. Because God's presence has not been stifled due to our continual obedience to him in the face of the fight. All right, the enemy wants you to think that your plan is pointless or not well planned. Like, all right, you got a purpose, but you know, you're never going to be able to accomplish that because, I mean, look at the way you're going about it. It's just not good enough. But when the church exhibits faithfulness in this moment of opposition from the enemy's fight against your life, your presence is proven in the light of the community that you're living in. Because there's a world out there that is trying to get us through the hand of the enemy to compromise. But when we refuse to, we establish the presence of God in this place and say, you can't get to me, Satan. The enemy wants you to think that your provision is pointless. All right, God, I'm living. I want to live with this calling on my life, and I want to be obedient and faithful to it. But God, you see, I just can't make ends meet. How can I do that? How can I respond this way? How can I give to that faith initiative offering? How can I help my coworkers? How can I help my family that, that's in need? How can I do any of that? I want to. I have the desire to. But you know how I can't do that. Faithfulness in the fight. Not allowing yourself to get in the fetal position. Because listen to me. While we ought to give financially, it's not limited to financials. You know what? I, I don't have the money, but you know what? I'm not going to allow that to cripple me. I do have more. I have more time. I have ability. I have a story. I can, I can go and work with them. I can help them. I can be there for them. And not just, yeah, say, I'll be there for you whenever you call. But I will actually show up when they call me and say, hey, I need you. I can show them that I have something to give to them. What I have, my provision is not pointless. So when the church has a presence, the community is going to be drawn to that presence. And you want to know who's at the stage and the center of that presence? It's God. Because it's God's presence that makes up the entirety of our gathering. When we gather we're the temple. We're the habitation, the cohabitation of the very spirit of God. And so, church, my challenge, my encouragement, my, my hope for us is that we would now more than ever redefine and revalue, reevaluate how much we value our gathering, our co-present habitation together. And listen, if you're online, you're a part of this, we love you. It's not going to fulfill it. It's not. It's a help. It's not the answer. This, this is the answer. The people of God gathering together, encouraging one another, praying for each other, being there for one another. Ultimately, and here's the point, because when we gather, we're showing the world. The world can't see it like they can see it when we gather together here as they could online. They can't. They can't see your faithfulness. They can't see your commitment. They can't see your desire for the next generation to receive the upbringing that they deserve and they, they are, were called to bring them up. In. They can't see that online. And we are called to be witnesses in this world. And we need to have a presence where God habitates to draw the world in. Amen. Can I ask you to stand up on your feet this morning?
can I invite my prayer team up? Amen. Amen. Glory to God. As the prayer team's coming up, know that you can be prayed for, that you can see blessing. We're here to talk with you. We'll practice social distancing if you have need. But let me just, let me just encourage and, and, and send us off under the blessing of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for the work that you've begun in this place today on this new day of this new week. God, I pray that we would allow your word to do the work that it sets out to do. Lord, I pray that we would not just have heard this word, but that we would be effectual doers of the word. Lord, I pray that we would bear up in the name of Jesus and recognize our ability to resist the opposition of our opponent, of the enemy, of the forces of evil that are trying to get us to compromise the integrity of our faith. I pray that we would reevaluate the reality that we are sons and daughters of God Most High. That we are not what this world defines us as. That we are not what of our closest friends define us as in a moment of anger and frustration. We are who you say we are. So Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here being vigilant and observant of every single tactic that the enemy is going to try to use against us. And I pray above all else, God, that we would overcome in Jesus' name because you have given us the victory. And it's in you we hope, and it's in you we walk. So Jesus, God, cover us. Lord, for next week, when we come together and we celebrate Jesus, when we preach our final message on the book of Nehemiah and we talk about revival, revival, God, I pray that you would create such an expectation that everybody here, those watching online, those who weren't here, would be drawn to receive your word, God. Lord, for those who are going to be baptized and make a public declaration of their faith, God, I pray that it would be the start of a journey that would completely change their lives forever. Not, not thinking that they're going to be perfect, but understanding that, hey, I live for Jesus and I'm not ashamed to live for Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would have fellowship together and we would experience the Spirit of God during that fellowship as we enjoy being together and we take a break as we ought to from the pains and the stresses of this world and our jobs and everything that brings us down. Lord, let next week be such a time of joy and a place where your Spirit resides. Lord, I thank you, God, for all that you're doing. I thank you for the healing that you're bringing to your people. I thank you for the opportunities that you're presenting us with to be witnesses in this fallen world. Let us continue to find strength to live for you in the days to come. So, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I praise you. And in your name, all of God's people agreed in faith together and said, amen, amen. Would you praise God one more time? Come on. Hey, I pray that you just have a great, great week. God bless you. We're officially dismissed. Go with the Lord. And again, if you need prayer, you can come to the front and we're here for you.